So welcome to This is Materiality as a Sustainable Humanistic Discourse, and we've been calling this BAD, B-A-D, <laughs> which I've now forgotten what, no, it's the Bibli book. Bibliography among the disciplines. Bibliography yeah. among the disciplines. <laughs> bad, 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 you people. Um, I'm Delia Porter. Um, I am currently in English Literature Department at the University of Glasgow. And um, I work mainly on the history and sociology of science in relationship to 18th and 19th century literature, mainly British, a little bit of German and French. This is Beth Yale. Hello, I'm Beth Yale at the University of Iowa, where I teach at the in the history department and the center for the book. Um, interest in the history of science and history of the book in the early modern world. Um, we're excited to see a full house today. I think when Dahlia and I were thinking about putting this panel together, we were thinking a lot about the engagements that we had had with people outside the scholarly world, book artists, literary types, um, poets, writers, fiction writers, curators, and what their interests in the material book were. Um, and I think at Iowa in particular, I've been really privileged to have opportunities to work with book artists, to work with literary scholars, to put people together in a room who are coming at the books from many, many different perspectives and using them in many, many different ways. And so one of our goals today was to just get those people in the room. So we have a fascinating array of scholars, of book artists, of people who write poetry, of curators, um, to talk about why the material book matters from their discipline and from their area of interest. Um, so excited to bring all those different ranges of expertise together and see what happens. Yeah. So what we're going to do in terms of format is we will introduce all of our speakers before we start, and then they will do their quick five to eight minutes strictly adjudicated um, <laughs> presentations, and then we will have a moderated discussion at the end um, with our moderator, Heather Wolf, who is down there. Leaving <laughs> 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 chairs for the presenters so they can actually sit. Okay, so let, I'll start with a couple of the introductions. Um, so if you can like wave when I say your name. Um, um, and Erica, can you tell me how to pronounce your last name so I don't mangle it? German or English? <laughs> Either the one you prefer. I'm going to talk about it, actually. Um, Beckler. First. Beckler, okay. So Erica Beckler is an assistant professor of English at Northeastern University. She's trained as a comparativist, and her work spans multiple genres and disciplines, Shakespearean drama, and English Renaissance poetry, history of the book, language theory, 16th century German art history, um, and early Slavic print culture. Her first book, Playful Letters, a study in early modern alphabets, or alphabetics, excuse me, um, from the University of Iowa in 2017, argues that artistic experimentation with the alphabet had a sweeping impact on intellectual and social history in the early modern period. Um, she's working on now a second book project that considers um, poetic writing on objects, including books, and how that draws attention to particular material features and manipulates our bodies as we experience poetry. Um, she's held fellowships from the Huntington, the Folger Shakespeare Library, uh, Wesley's College, and the Newhouse Center of the Humanities, among others. And she's published on the alphabet in Shakespeare comedies, etc. So, thank you for coming. I'll pass you. Yes. Um, and I will introduce, welcome, Raina Joins. Raina? Yes. Raina, sorry. Raina Joins um, has an MFA from the University of Florida. Uh, she's currently at the University of North Texas. And she's been awarded residencies at the Blue Mountain Center, the Hambridge Center for Creative Arts and Sciences, and the Lillian E. Smith Center. She was a participant in the Letterpress Printing and Fine Press Publishing Seminar for Emerging Writers at the Center for the Book Arts in New York, and a Paul Mariani Fellow at the Glenn Workshop in Santa Fe. She received a first honorable mention for her poetry from the Dana Awards in 2015, and her work is out or forthcoming in Crab Orchard Review, Measure, St. Catherine Review, Unlost Journal, and Grist, a Journal of the Literary Arts. 
She teaches at the University of North Texas, where she's a faculty advisor of the North Texas Review, and she'll be speaking today on the scholar's art, making and mining material artifacts. And I'm gonna introduce Robert Ritter, who works in the College of Communication and Information Studies at the University of Alabama, and holds appointments in the Library and Information Studies and Book Arts. He teaches courses in archival history, book history, descriptive, descriptive bibliography, and special collections librarianship. His research addresses issues related to the publication of original source material, the development of archival ideas and concepts, and the history of papermaking in the United States. Do I have a title? Mm -hmm. uh, here. Oh, and Robert is going to be talking today about engaging and representing scientific data through book art. And Todd Samuelson. Do you like our passing it back and forth? Sustainable. Todd Samuelson is assistant director for special collections at the J. Willard Marriott Library at the University of Utah. <laughs> Previously, he served as the curator of rare books and manuscripts and director of the book history workshop at Cushing Memorial Library and Archives at Texas A&M University. He holds a PhD from the University of Houston, an MA from Boston College, and a BA from Brigham Young University. He's also pursued credentials through the Rare Book School and the Certificate in Book Production in 2016. Um, he is the co-PI and book history researcher for the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation grant OCRing Early Modern Texts. He's also served as the project, uh, also received a project grant from the Society for the History of Authorship, Reading, and Publishing. His research on topics related to book history, digital humanities, and special collections administration has appeared in journals including papers of the Bibliographical Society of America, Printing History Journal for Research uh, for Early Modern Cultural Studies, Library Portal, Libraries in the Academy, and College and Research Libraries. Uh, Todd is going to be speaking about us today on the lexical substrate, the materiality of language in the history of the book. I'm going to introduce Leslie Smith. You want to wave? Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Leslie makes drawings, prints, and books based on her interest in early modern natural philosophy and translation. She holds an MFA in book arts from the University of Iowa Center for the Book and a master's degree in library science. She's held a fellowship at the Folger Shakespeare Library and an artist residency at the Penland School of Crafts. Her work is held in public and private collections, including the Smithsonian Dibner Library of History of Science and Technology, the UCLA Biomedical Library, and the Flaxman Library at the Art Institute of Chicago. She has exhibited her work both nationally and internationally. And today, Leslie is going to talk to us about From Wonder to New Artwork. And an item that Leslie has not added to her bio because it just happened. She was just awarded the purchase prize for the art, artist books exhibit Handy Books at the University of Iowa Special Collections. It's a fantastic book. It's called Inner Rooms. You should all check it out. Um, and then I have the great pleasure to introduce Simran Tadani, known in bookish circles as Sim, specializing in the history of letter forms and technologies of printing and writing. She's worked extensively with rare books, manuscripts, fine press works, and the book arts through employment and fellowships at the Morgan Library and Museum, the Newberry Library, the Folger Shakespeare Library, Arion Press, and most recently Letterform Archive, where she served as founding executive director from 2015 to 2017. With Nicholas Barker, Sim co-edited the substantially revised and newly illustrated ninth edition of the ABC for Book Collectors, Make All Your Students Buy It. Mm -hmm. She spent several summers on the program staff at Rare Book School and is a trained calligrapher and paleographer. <coughs> Sim holds a BA from Wesley College and an MA and PhD from the University of Pennsylvania. She currently serves on the Council of the Bibliographical Society of America and the editorial board of the APHA journal Printing History. 
She's given numerous talks on the history and art and history and art of books as objects, including to generalist audience in such public fora as Creative Mornings and Nerd Night. <laughs> I feel like this is kind of like a combination where it's Nerd Morning, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> creative Nerd Morning. <laughs> uh, Sim will be speaking to us on rare books beyond the ivory tower. And with that, we'll turn it over to our presenters. I think, Erica, you're up first. Can we turn this off, actually, since I'm not showing oh, the sure. images? Hi. So I once heard a radio segment on whether our names affect our professional destinies. <laughs> um, and apparently some preliminary findings discovered um, in psychology um, that a disproportionate number of dentists were named Dennis. My last name is Buckler. Oh, sure. My last name is Buckler. I like to talk um, and walk. My last name is Buckler, which in Dutch um, means book. (laughs) Book. Um, So go figure. Um, Today, today I aim to address how the terminology of descriptive bibliography shapes our thinking about books. After I wrote a draft of my proposal affirming materiality as sustainable humanistic discourse and had almost submitted it, I realized I had some resistances to the premise of the roundtable. I mean, it makes sense on the surface. We all share a common base of the material, or do we? If anything, the discipline of book history has shown us that the material is hardly a stable concept, and our work shows how much an understanding of the material remains rooted, as the call for paper says, in specific cultural contexts. I think we are too often grounded in an unexamined sense of the material. My initial proposal looked to material and poetic negotiations between early modern printed books and inscribed non-book objects like posy rings and combs. Each instantiation of a text in a different material substrate requires readers to interact differently with the text and the object on which it appears. Reading the posy on a ring, for example, requires holding the ring a specific way and turning it in order to read the inscription. These are what editors of objects and materials call interface objects, that is, objects that become constituted through moments of encounter. I had intended to argue that humans are also constituted through encounters with objects. Different approaches to materiality and textuality across humanistic disciplines encourage us to confront the ways in which both structure the movement and sensory experiences of our bodies, working in tandem with the movement of our minds. Johanna Drucker, another fateful German name, um, (laughs) calls for a notion of materiality that is grounded in performance. Namely, she argues that interpretive acts provoke or call into presence particular features of an object. I think accounting for bodily performance in encounters with textual objects needs to be a stronger focus um, for bibliography across the disciplines. The biblio, or book, has exerted excessive clout in bibliographic practices, and here I argue that the language of bookmaking and descriptive bibliography is a good place to start working through our biases in the field. Its richly dual vocabularies connect simultaneously process and product, human and non-human objects, semantic and material text. This language is also historically fluid. I will focus on examples from the period I know best, the early modern, and I'll be talking about English terminology. 
Philip Gaskell calls a single folded piece of paper in a bound book a gathering. Gathering points to movement, human, textual, and what I'll call paperial, although it could be animal skin or other um, types of things. Um, from a human point of view, gathering recalls the movement of a human body as it interacts with paper, folding and fitting sheets into and next to each other. From the text point of view, it's a reordering of the printed sequence, a destiny anticipated by catchwords and signatures finally fulfilled. From the papyrial point of view, it's about making new connections with parts of itself and new contact with other paper, about popping out from a flattish two-dimensional form into a three-dimensional one. It's about human fingers entering into tactile relationships with paper's properties, about paper acquiring creases, getting poked with the materials of the binding. The sheet of paper's integrity is obscured and, com and compromised by gatherings, subject to the higher demands of textuality. Interestingly, the textual reminders of that integrity are called signatures, as if paper or the press um, offered a kind of authority running in tandem or against authorial or other human composition. In fact, the word signature presents paperial autonomy as co-opting authorial autonomy as a printed holograph or autograph text constitute an oxymoron. And while gathering, the gathering offers a discrete material unit often at odds with the semantic divisions of a text, it is the leaves of the gathering that permit a text to progress semantically, to gather momentum. The term catchword also visibly captures and unites the triple actions of physical type on the move, the ongoing continuity of the semantic text, and the catching act of imposing the text on the piece of paper. And now, a now obsolete usage of gathering current in early modern times refers to a compilation of literary matter. The literary genre names itself after the material practices that produce it, sometimes used synonymously with gathering the term choir also um, could denote a short poem or treatise in a small pamphlet made of four sheets, and by extension also generally a book containing a literary work. In his Speke Parrot Poems, John Skelton says, Go little choir, named the papagai. But choir can also just denote some folded sheets of writing paper. While details of specific typepieces can be rare in descriptive bibliography, it's worth noting the operative metaphor in this realm. Type is human and probably male, since each piece has a beard that must be trimmed away. <laughs> Type sorts are created in a matrix, Latin for womb. Joseph Moxon in 1683 describes the bodies of sorts as having heads, beards, feet, shanks, fats, and leans. There's also a whiff of plant and human um, animal hybridity with stems, beaks, and tails. Um, early printers and the constructed, letter, the constructed letter crowd of the late 15th century also describe letters um, anthropomorphically, recruiting additional corporeal terms like character, arm, belly, and ear. A collection of sorts in a similar style is a face. Set type in preparation for printing needs to be dressed. In fact, even the terminology that Moxon uses to describe the press itself and many other tools used in printing is completely saturated with anthropomorphic terms. The human alphabets popular in the 16th century represent text as bodily engagement. The material-based diction we use to talk about paper books needs to have continued sustainability. That is, it needs to remain productive in the post-human world. 
I think that if we let it, it offers us that option by broaching the sometimes significant divides between the semantic text, the human and non-human agents creating the printed text, and the material properties of the text as they are constituted through our interpretation. And Raina will be speaking on the scholar's art, making and mining material artifacts. All right. Hi, um, Walter Benjamin writes that the relationship of writers to their material is a craftsman's relationship. So write that down for a minute. Um, this points to the way writers draw on memory or experience to create, and also the way they select and arrange words on the page, of course. I want to draw attention to how this relationship is demonstrated in writers' engagement with material artifacts. Contemporary poets and artists who make text-based collage, erasures, intermedia, altered books, show how material objects inspire the creation of new artifacts and bring the arts, literature, and criticism in animated, together in animated conversation. I want to take a narrow set of examples, I hope some of them are known, uh, by poets and artists who are enough to highlight, I think, the crafty action of a hand on a page. Um, so specimens from poets are going to include Austin Kleon, who makes blackout poems with a sharpie and a newspaper in newspaper blackout, and Mary Rufel, who used whiteout to make her artist book A Little White Shadow. Both of these artists and poets sculpt evocative pieces from other works to highlight the role of the hand in their creation. Um, the well-known British artist Tom Phillips mines and undermines his source text, A Human Document, um, by W.H. Malick, to produce a hybrid work of art and found text in a human a treated Victorian novel. Phillips' running narrative pulls out, of an, al pulls out excuse me, an alternative text and veils the rest in images, building a work of amazing scope. His first version came out in 1973, and the final version was just published this year. Um, since multiple iterations of his treatment were revealed along the way, readers and viewers were able to see how the source text eroded and was ornamented over time. Um, we have interdisciplinary artist Jen Bourbon, um, who used fade-out in nets to strip Shakespeare's sonnets bare to the nets um, and create poems that foreground their ghostly apparent text that's hard to see, but there's a Shakespearean sonnet behind there. <laughs> in the desert, she machine-stitched over a source text by John Van Dyke to reveal a text that floats in sky-blue landscapes of thread. Um, each of these authors uses an artistic process to alter material objects, um, creating a haunting dialogue between an original and the erased or occulted text. That dialogue often includes commentary on the technical process of production itself. Um, the texts excavated by these authors all seem to allude to the techniques by which they were made. Um, this is here, by the way. I was fingering it on Thursday. It's lovely. Um, <laughs> in interviews, some of the authors state that having an object in their hands and manipulating it not only inflected their creations, but made creation possible in the first place. Um, Cleon decided against marketing an app for this because he missed holding the newspaper and redacting it with the Sharpie. Um, 
He missed it having it at hands. Rufel writes that when she prepares to white out a found book, the words, I'm quoting, seem to rise, hover in space, form a kind of field, and then she picks them. <laughs> Philip's phrase, mines and undermines, um, traces the double gesture of extracting and subverting a content from one artifact to make another. His pages often reference the book's creation or comment on art making in general. Um, process becomes part of the plot here. In his afterword, Phillips writes, serendipity is the best collaborator. Many examples of erasure also point to critical questions raised by their source texts. In their privately printed book, Gentle Reader, Joshua Beckman, Anthony McCann, Matthew Rower erase texts by various romantic writers to create poems that focus on and filter romantic expectations. They put the original writers, you know, Wollstonecraft, Wordsworth, Shelley, and others, and titles in the notes at the end of the book, not as sources on each page. Um, they do not add their own names to each erasure, leaving readers to guess who made each one, and again, reframing questions of authorship. Titles such as Confession, He Hid, Fakes, and A Conversation kind of punch up the art of a poetry under critical review. Um, for his book, Voyager, Srikanth Reddy makes three separate erasures of Waldheim's memoir in the eye of the storm to create a hypnotic critique of the political disasters of the 20th century. Um, Waldheim, you might know this text, was Secretary General of the UN for a decade, and in that role he recorded a message of greeting on behalf of the people of our planet um, for the Voyager spacecraft, in which he stated that we step out of our solar system into the universe seeking only peace and friendship. Um, he was later exposed as having been a Nazi SS officer. <laughs> Hello, universe. Um, Reddy's work marries technique, form, um, and content, winding and rewinding the tape to accentuate the tragedies and ironies of cultural <coughs> memory and forgetting. I absolutely recommend looking in that book. I'm not showing examples here. Poetic practices of erasure, um, alongside techniques of cut-up, collage, annotation, indexing, adding marginalia, take us directly onto the field of play in the humanities. Words emerge from the wilderness, books become altered books, texts eclipse and orbit each other, um, roles of poet, artist, and critic are juxtaposed on the page. By studying technical practices of such writers and artists, we can draw on their fragmentary, hybrid, and innovative forms and artifacts to improve our own writing and scholarship. These are not the only ways poets use material artifacts, obviously, to convey the spirited exchange between creative and critical impulses. Poet Susan Howe rifles through the archives and builds essays with fragments of autobiographical and historical material. Um, more and more, she says, I wish to express the critical spirit in its restlessness. And her hybrid essays oscillate between history, poetry, criticism, borrowing energy from each. We also see this restless spirit captured in writers' notebooks. Um, Benjamin's notion of the writer as craftsman is framed by his obsession with keeping a physical record of his thinking. Postcards, diaries, commonplace books, notebooks, he's filled them with charts, microscripts, diagrams, lists of words and affinities that provide him with a trove of fragments to return to again and again. Um, like him, other modern and contemporary thinkers use notebooks as a kind of studio, a place to quietly develop work before it flies out. Literary and visual commonplace books remind us of our reading, map our artistic development, and mark a trail of ideas for ongoing projects. Making and mining them has proven very beneficial for writers and artists, and studying others' notebooks, their inception, organization, modes of processing, their whole imaginary is very productive. Um, 
I think the ace card of the humanities is our ability to embody the critical spirit and its restlessness in material objects. Um, we rehearse and present interpretations of our cultural heritage that we find meaning in and inspiration from the artifacts handed down to us. Um, to enliven the discourse surrounding material studies, we might build professional support and infrastructure for creative writers who want to plumb the archives um, and present that material. Uh, we might design innovative interdisciplinary exhibitions, essays, lists, or other creative works that map the traces and constellations between an author's reading and specimen collection, notebooks and commonplace books, literary and artistic production, and what others produced in response, including new creative work. We might develop cross-disciplinary courses team taught by faculty in studio arts and creative writing for writers who want to learn ways to manipulate material artifacts and text. Um, we might purchase a Vander Cook proof press for my English department. <laughs> <laughs> when I return, um, I intend to inform them that Anthony Grafton has said, artisanal skills transform the practice of learned men. Um, I think women as well. Um, I'd like to read more innovative and hybrid work. The poet Robin Cost Lewis has said, we must embrace literary performances outside our field of vision. Um, I would add that we must strive to bring those performances to a wider public and work to display and dramatize the wrestling match between makers and their materials. Okay, Thank you, Raina. And next up we have Robert, and let's get your presentation opened up. And Robert will be speaking on engaging and representing scientific data through book art. Um, I'll be, I have images of the two books I'll be illustrating as my case, but I also brought an example of a, of, of a small artist book, just in case um, it seems to discuss the material to give you something to, to hold and look at. Uh, now, my, my goal in, uh, in, in this presentation today is to um, um, discuss how book artists have, have uh, engaged with, um, represented, captured um, scientific information, and, and really sort of with a concern with creating a sustainable discourse, but also using the particular aspects of materiality is deployed in, in book art and the making of handmade books uh, and book-like objects to also um, address concerns related to contemporary sustainability. Uh, Scientific data is uniquely tied to materiality. Scientific observations generate data sets. They are transformed into additional texts, texts broadly defined, that can be perceived, critiqued, evaluated, and used to inform future scientific and or societal actions. Um, traditional scientific texts often engage with include, but are not limited to, data sets, narrative and statistical reports, and variety of models. However, in addition to these traditional texts, the influence of scientific data on the genera generation of artistic works has a strong precedent. Um, and again, when we think of this, you know, we think of the history of, of scientific illustration. So the intersection of, of science and art is not, you know, um, a new relationship, but um, the sort of the discussion today of how book artists, as a you know class of artists and, and makers and critics engaging with um, um, scientific data um, will be the emphasis here. Um, so here I'll, I'll discuss. Um, um, so in addition to you know um, those aspects, uh, um, the use of artistic methodology as a method for capturing data. 
uh, is also present. Uh, here I'll focus my attention on how book artists have used the art of the book and processes for making handmade books as mechanisms for communicating and in some instances capturing scientific information. In these cases, the materialities of book art, book binding, hand paper making, letterpress printing, and the emphasis on effective expression strongly inform how data is represented, communicated, and captured. Works of book art that have as their, as their subject scientific data operate in a manner similar to traditional scientific texts, but offer an opportunity to consider the varied nature of and potentials for scientific expression. Similarly, concerning artist books whose works are conceived purposefully as mechanisms for scientific representation, aid us in considering formulations of, of making science, you know, contributing to ongoing discussions of citizen science and the issue of, of what it means to engage with science and those, who those participants are. Now, um, I'll introduce these points through um, a discussion of, of two cases, um, one um, Sarah Bryan's and, and David Allen's uh, figure study and, and Chris Davenport's um, cupful. Now, in, in addressing this, there are sort of two facets, facets to this. Sort of book art as an instrument for, uh, as a communication instrument, but then also book art as a mechanism for capturing um, um, data. Um, as I'll discuss with figure study, figure study is a translation of an existing data set, you know, into, um, uh, into, uh, you know, an expressive form, a demographic data set. Well, on the other hand, couple is a, is a purposeful deployment of hand paper making to capture river ecology. Uh, Sarah Bri Allen's and Bryant's figure study is a book uh, um, created to communicate scientific data in a strongly visual manner, drawing attention to demographic conditions and creating a space for comparison and consideration. In describing the intention and function of the book, Brian and Allen write, using data from the U.S. Census Bureau's international database, we created population periods for every region on Earth, 114 is represented in the database, and paired them at the peak to create human-like forms. This imagery printed on drafting film from linoleum can be layered by the viewer and interpreted using a grid and accompanying booklet. The vast and critical differences between the basic equations of life in different parts of the world are starkly revealed by comparing one shape onto another. Now, if you look at the book, um, you see that on the, on the axis is the, the population figure, 0 to 80, 0 to 80, um, um, the um, gender categories, um, male and female, and again, taken directly from the database, not necessarily an expression of the lived experiences of the identity places of the individuals placed into those categories. Um, and, and then um, the proportion. Uh, so what you see is when you're viewing this, you're viewing the, age, the, the, the span of, of the age range of individuals, um, the proportion of, of that population over time. And because of the nature of the book, that all those, the, the films are um, printed on linoleum so it can be layered over the document. Um, Figure study provides a context for vividly acquiring an understanding of worldwide demographic population differences and disparities. Uh, this becomes a space for considering the particular geographic, political, and social context that inform the conditions that determine the presence and absence of people. Bibliographically, figure studies an act of data transformation or reprocessing, drawing on existing data sets, Bryant and Allen, while not altering the data, provide an alternative representation. The data contained in the tables of the Census Bureau's database inspires a strongly visual and spatial representation, but provide access, both provide access to data, both support understanding. However, how does the materiality of the data structure inform the meaning created by the reader, whether artist, scientist, or policymaker? 
bigger study draws attention to how the communication of data is informed by the materiality of the instruments itself, the instrument of representation. Now, the materiality of gathering. Book artists have also creative works that relied on the materiality of the book art as a structure for capturing data. In addition to communicating data, Davenport's uh, couple is a study of, of uh, Davenport's couple is an example of this work. It's a study of the Black Warrior River. Couple consists of two volumes, paper and photographs. But in these remarks, I'll focus on couple paper. The work consists of bound, seemingly blank pages of handmade paper. When you read the book, um, and these are that's the Black Warrior River. Um, this is the book. What it looks like that's an image of the Black Warrior River. It charts through West Alabama. Um, and note these images of the paper briefly. And there are differences in terms of color, in terms of texture. Um, this isn't caused by the image of the film. Um, when you read the book, the papers are different in texture and smell. Some of the pages contain fiber material. Cupful paper was made along the banks of the Black Warrior River. The papers that comprise the pages of the book were made using water taken directly from the river at multiple sites. The variations read in the paper correlate to differences in water quality at different collection points and papermaking sites. In considering this difference, it is important to recognize that each of these sites correlate to communities that rely on the Black Warrior River for recreation and subsistence. Cupful communicates scientific data. It is, is a representational instrument, but more importantly, considering materiality as process, Cupful operates as a mechanism for gathering scientific information. Uh, Davenport deploys data collection as critique in his words. Cupful is an ecological action through collection and sample. The Black Warrior River is regularly noted as one of the most endangered waterways in the United States due to the consequences of mining and agricultural related pollution. A reader could acquire this information from a formal governmental data set, a uh, particular material expression of scientific data. However, a reader could also engage with Davenport's book which contains and expresses data in a unique structure. While different in form, a reader of Cupful acquires an understanding of ecological consequences through reading of scientific data. Uh, to conclude, in these remarks, my objective was to draw attention to how book art operates as a form for expressing scientific data, for supporting engagement with scientific information, and certain instances is an instrument for collection. What distinguishes book art as process and instrument are the particular materialities of book art and the capabilities of the materialities to capture and express data. Thank you very much. Presentation working. And Todd will be presenting on lexical substrate, the materiality of language and the history of the book. Thank you. As technologies of book creation developed over time, new techniques drew their language from superseded modes of expression. The terminology of earlier book features became integrated into the descriptions of new approaches and materials. In this way, the physicality at the origin of book creation was encoded etymologically in the functions of the new artifact, a continuous cycle which links our present interactions as writers, readers, or makers with the processes of the past. These beginnings persist as a linguistic undercurrent in the common English vocabulary for the book, its component parts, and the act of reading. Though this process of lexical repurposing remains beneath the surface to most readers, the connection between familiar terminology and the rough material used in early book production provides ongoing linkages with the past. Even seemingly abstract concepts 
carry within them gestures toward raw substances, stone, wood, metal, clay, or actions revolving the scroll, turning a page. Other terminology retains the presence of language related to perception, sight, and touch, and the relationship between the human body and objects evaluated by eye or held in the hand. It's commonly known that the word paper derives through Latin and French from papyrus, linking a newer substance and technology with its predecessor, with which it shares certain functional features, if not a process of creation or its essential defining nature. The transfer of terminology is not always so direct as to link a newly conceived material with another it is in the process of displacing. More frequently, the relationship is metonymic, connecting a characteristic of the substance or process with the object. For example, the Latin and Greek biblis, which is, of course, the term for book and the source of our word Bible, as well as the prefix biblio, denotes the inner fibers of the papyrus reed. The usage spread from the fiber to the sheets formed from the plant and was later applied to collections of writings on papyrus sheets and ultimately to other surfaces. Another example. Uh, in recent years, this vocabulary has been passed on to another generation of media. Consider the tablet used to run apps and to interface with the internet in which we scroll down a page of content. Our word for this technology in its various iterations derives from the old French term meaning slab or brick. The earliest tablets bearing graphic communication were blocks of clay found in Mesopotamia. These tablets were simple to produce and utilized a common material, but also developed features familiar to later versions of the tablet. The clay tablet was mutable, and even if sun-hardened, could be reshaped if soaked in water and reconstituted into a virgin writing surface, though it could also be made permanent by firing in a kiln. The tablet can demonstrate security features to preserve sensitive context by being enveloped. Meaning can be produced either by printing using a matrix like a cylinder seal or by writing using a stylus or a combination of these technologies. Later tablets include those created from raw or relatively unprocessed materials such as tablets of leaves or wood which could be written upon singly or looped together to form a sequence. Not only is the bibliographical term leaf synonymous with the Latin folio, but the codex is related synecdochically as well as the Latin codex denotes the trunk of the tree. Similarly, a wax tablet could be made singly or joined in multiple segments, a feature which certain binding historians suggest is related to the development of the codex. Ultimately, the terms used to denote a block of removable paper sheets attached mechanically or with adhesive gave way in speculative film and science fiction, and subsequently, in reality, to the tablet computer. What I wish to emphasize is not only the way that the name became attached to successive technologies and objects, but the way in which many functions and features of these related objects were also transferred. What does the latest incarnation of the tablet have in common with its progenitors? Certainly, its proportions relative to the human body, the ease of grasping and holding something which provides an immediate surface for marking with a stylus, or for reading retained symbols or images. The most characteristic feature of the tablet, then and as now, the manner in which it is held for use is analogous to the handbook and the manual, two objects which, etymologically speaking, are synonymous, the resource designed and sized to fit in the hand, or, as the OED suggests, intended to be kept at hand for reference. The transition from the material precursor to a new digital object may suggest a more transformative shift, though, as with other major technological turns, the points of continuity may be greater than the points of disjunction and the ultimate change more evolutionary than revolutionary. 
Over the past 20 years, software engineers and designers have argued about this issue in the movement from analog to digital tools. Borrowing a term from the 19th century, designers have continued to debate about skeuomorphic design, in which functional elements drawn from superseded physical artifacts are incorporated into later applications. These unnecessary transitional features are often considered useful in bridging the gap of technological acceptance, but at a certain point limit the new medium from achieving maturity on its own terms. These elements, such as a floppy disk icon representing the save function, a rotary dial on a cellular phone's calling app, or page-turning animation added to a digital book, are often seen as vestigial features of an earlier system which can be abandoned when the new has reached a level of familiarity. These surface features, however, may be the most visible but least essential points of connection between an old order and a coming system. They may represent the wrong points of connection to draw our focus, as well as leading to the fallacy that technological movement is linear and singular, with one process wholly displaced by another rather than a dialogue in which one technology adopts aspects of the former in a mode of coexistence. Further, the linguistic encoding of earlier processes also incorporates a history of physical interactions and cultural expectations, which subtly determine the manner in which we approach the object and its anticipated use. This is part of the rich and complex residue summoned by this lexical web. The most we can hope to do is to reconstruct points of contact through the almost archaeological process of unearthing earlier materials and methods, which have been incorporated, which after all is a term of the body, into the next manner of meaning-making. All of these considerations have led me to the conviction that the means of exploring and expressing these ideas should follow a form that engages and enacts this process with the proper spirit of playfulness and deliberation regarding the physical. The structure which I've determined to be appropriate to its particular topic and advantage is the artist's book. Um, my, my work uh, in process entitled Primitive Surface Oblique Memorial, its title uh, refracted from a line from Shakespeare's Troilus and Cressida, is structured around 22 spreads corresponding to words connecting bibliographical features with their material, material forebears. Uh, the book in progress includes pressure printing and wood engraving, letterpress wood and metal types, and an accordion structure which will suggest the circularity of these linguistic interchanges, but also allow for simultaneity as the entire work is viewed as a whole. The work will link my research into the etymologies linking common book features with elemental material precursors, and will discuss the process by which these linkages allowed me to proceed from conceptual and linguistic functions into the material and bodily experience of creating wood, paper, ink, and leather. Uh, I consider the book as a continuous tether with the past and a reflection of the materiality produced as the book's makers, sellers, and readers encounter an object set in proportion to the human form. Thank you very much. Virtuoso printmaking and reading there. Thank you, Todd. Leslie, you're up. And we welcome Leslie Smith, who will be speaking on the subject from wonder to new artwork. Oh no! I just want to turn. I, I've been noticing the the light's so strong it, it um, blasts the artwork. So I should just we lower the lights at the back? We can do that too. No, no. It's it's more the. Um, is it? 
it feels like the sometimes the, the art feels like it's being interrogated. <laughs> um, all right. Um, it felt really good to put these words on on material there. Um, so um, I'm going to speak about. Um, Robert Hooke's Micrographia, um, one aspect of it, and its influence on two pieces of my artwork. With the limited time, I feel like we've got time for <laughs> one thing, two pieces of artwork. Um, so anyway, um, to begin, uh, I was I wanted to speak a little bit about why I was... Hang on. Are we moving forward? I'm confused. How do I advance? Shit, if you just use the arrow keys? Yeah. Oh, there we yeah, go. There we Sorry, go. Okay. I think I didn't press hard enough. Um, uh, this is a, a example from the Folger Shakespeare Library, and it's a second edition, 1667. Um, I was, I was, make sure I can hear me. I was drawn to this book um, one because it's an extraordinary book in every way, um, but also because in the voice and the writing, I could hear that Robert Hooke was a maker, an artist, um, and uh, was always working with tools. Um, and that spoke specifically to me as a printer and a binder and a, and a maker. Um, he began the, the book uh, with uh, the point of a needle and uh, the edge of a rusted razor blade, and those two things are always at my desk. Um, <laughs> my, uh, my razor blade rusted on its own. I don't, I don't know how, but it did. Um, and the, it spoke to me very loudly. It made this book much louder than so many of the other books that I was looking at. I was um, looking at books about curiosity and wonder and every kind of curiosity and wonder. In this case, it's the wonder of the microscopic. Um, and then, of course, the printed period called my name also. <laughs> um, in the, I was particularly struck by the, the last um, uh, set of imagery in the book. Um, it's uh, a range of stars. And then um, he says in the, in the writing that there was a void in the copper plate. They hadn't used all the copper plate. Um, and so he added this study of the moon in the, in the left corner to make use of all the material. And for me, as an artist, you're always trying to make use of every scrap of material, and that really spoke to me also. Um, this, and I felt, so it made me feel quite a kinship with the book. I could feel his hand in the book. He didn't make it himself, but I could feel his hand definitely in the book. Um, Despite this uh, kinship, you never know when you're looking at these things what is really going to call your name. I really believed it was going to be the imagery that was going to call out to me the loudest, um, and it didn't end up being the case. Um, what really um, spoke to me, uh, the um, you know, the imagery, their copper plate etchings, and they're tipped in, and just because of the arrangement of the book, certain of them are right close together, and if you sort of unfold them just part way, you can see multiple at a time. And I was really struck by um, this layering uh, of things that seem seemingly unrelated, um, the plants, the stars, um, this insect, all piled on top of each other. And I, um, I thought, isn't this, if, if thoughts were made of paper, isn't this what they would look like? Um, they they'd be things related and unrelated, animal, vegetable, mineral. Um, they would be half hidden, um, folded, draped over each other, sitting there in the mind. Um, and so um, this is really what called to me. I couldn't. I was sort of mad at myself. I couldn't believe it. I was like, really? There's this all this gorgeous imagery, and this is what you're like hooked on. Um, <laughs> I'm just so annoyed with you. <laughs> so, um, anyway, I just want to show one more image of these sort of this juxtaposition. These these pieces um, layered on top of each other, just sitting there waiting to be unfolded. Um, so I 
uh, since I was working on curiosity and wonder, I was like, okay, let's let's begin somewhere that I know. Let's begin with the wonder that I have seen. So I began with, I saw these temporary lakes. Um, I was flying over a plane from Europe, and I flew over Greenland, um, and I saw these temporary lakes that are down there, and they're like these giant bright blue eyes staring up at the plane. Um, and they apparently can last, um, oh, thank you, uh, years, months, and then drain in a couple of hours. So for 15 years now, I've been thinking about these temporary lakes. And um, so I was like, okay, um, let's begin, let's work, work this wonder through the body, let's work this wonder through a folded form. So, okay, paper thoughts. Um, and I, I made a series of handmade maps. These are woodcuts with embroidery. And I'm thinking about the paper thoughts laid end to end as if the thoughts were linear. Um, they're not, but <laughs> let's pretend. <laughs> um, and also the fact that because they're individual maps, these are uh, one, two, four maps, um, they could also be rearranged to, to work on the thinking. Um, so I put them together, and, and this is a, a repeated thought of me thinking about Greenland. Um, friend said to me, are you ever going to stop thinking about Greenland? I'm like, I, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe not. Um, uh, so, and then also just looking at the rise and fall of thoughts, things coming to the fore, things receding. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, and this is take, take one. <laughs> uh, take two is, is a book I made recently that Beth mentioned called, uh, those, those maps are called Internal Lakes. Everything's internal. Everything, I feel like everything uh, that we see um, uh, starts outside and flows inside. I love when they're talking about it, some of the reading that I read, that it gets painted on the retina and then enters into the body, and that's how I, I feel it's true. Um, so this is a book called Inner Rooms, um, and it is about also these, these wonders being stored away in the inner rooms. Um, some of them are large like a gym, some are small like a closet, but they, they both are filled. Um, and this is a, an accordion uh, fold book with flaps, and again, it can be um, manipulated <clears throat> and in such a way that, that, again, helps me sort of think about paper thoughts, think about what, what form they can take and, and what it means. Um, in this one, I can arrange it so the text is, is protruding, um, so, you know, words come to the fore, image recesses. And this, uh, we're looking at the, the, the folds kind of ganged up together, and isn't this where um, a thought would hide? It, wouldn't it be um, tucked in the folds, hidden under flaps? And But all the while, Greenland is there. <laughs> it's not going away. <laughs> um, and the lakes, the lakes are also there, lying in wait to be thought about. Um, so yeah, thank you. And now we welcome Sim, who will be speaking on Rare Books Beyond the Ivory Tower. I changed my title, I'm annoying. Um, <laughs> bibliography Beyond the Disciplines, Rare Books in the Wild. So recently, there was this nerdy discussion that was going on on this listserv that I'm on. And um, I said that it made me giggle that The Economist, which is printed on glossy paper, doesn't have a fold, staple bound, I can speak louder. I just I wanna I wanna be able to move around. It's staple bound. It boasts full full color illustrations throughout. 
never includes byline. And someone, you know, we were talking about magazines, and, and, and I was saying it made me giggle that they call this, they call themselves a newspaper. Every issue, literally somewhere, they begin, this newspaper believes, <laughs> you know. And I, and I got a huffy off-list email from a very respected scholar who said that I must not trust either my eyes or the book's format, but I must instead look to Google Books for the economist's typographic origins as a newspaper. So I did. I looked it up. <laughs> <laughs> and that was 1905. That's not The Economist was 1843. This is 1905, and it looks like a newspaper. But this is what you get in the mail today. <laughs> so newsflash, this is not what most people are searching Google Books for, and this is not how they perceive The Economist. <laughs> so you know how sometimes you have these moments of despair? You're a book historian, and you're like, oh my god, my work is brilliant and original, but it's totally irrelevant to the real world? No, just me. <laughs> well, this person who emailed me did not have this problem, because he was pedantic about 1905, you know? And I live in San Francisco. I'm surrounded by technology. My father is a CPA. My brother is a hedge fund partner. My husband is an MBA who used to be an engineer. And so I realized, I've learned the hard way, that in order for me to share what I know, in order to me, for me to bring my hard-earned, esoteric, bibliographical factoids to the table, I need to work hard to bring them in translation. I need to work to make that relevant and interesting and fun. Because I can't be this. <laughs> and sometimes, horrors, I need to acknowledge that my PhD can only go so far in a plebeian world in which most people today interact with material in a totally different digital dematerialized, defanged, dehistoricized way. I would say also the title of this panel on its own, while it's totally reasonable to all of us, would make most people I know roll their eyes. <laughs> so my, my point is so much book talk and book study and book admiration and book learning is largely confined to book people. Yeah. And that sucks. <laughs> the future deserves to know its past and not just the in-crowd. Materiality is a sustainable humanistic discourse depends on us showing up where they are, not waiting for them to come to us. It depends on us narrowing the gap between the humanities and the public humanities. And no one is truly doing this outreach at scale, which I realized when a friend asked me over coffee, Sim, why is there no Neil deGrasse Tyson for the humanities? So guerrilla book history, for when you take your PhD and go west with no perceptible academic or alt-ac future in sight, you spend a random Wednesday evening giving a stand-up comedy-style talk about your dissertation to a packed bar full of tipsy people sandwiched between science rap and shark week. <laughs> <laughs> and they have a printed poster, which I have one of. This is the venue, and by the way, Nerd Night takes place in 90 cities around the world every month, so if you too can be on this stage, Heather did this last month, um, if you'd like, talk to me. Um, I was going to show the first 30 seconds of my talk, but I don't know if the sound is working, so we're just going to skip out. So what happens is soon after this talk, note night, we can come back maybe in Q&A, um, but soon after this I landed a marketing internship at a small e-reading company, as one does with a PhD in Renaissance book history. <laughs> <laughs> but all this while, I'm working in tech, but I'm doing this rare book thing on the side. I'm curating an exhibition for the Grolier Club in New York. I'm working on an Aryan Press bibliography. I'm revising the ABC for book collectors. And all this while, I'm thinking to myself, how could I actually get to work with the stuff 
and shout from the rooftops the amazingness of this material, physical past, the way that I'm beating the drum of our pocket, but like to normal people, <laughs> not in the ivory tower. And will someone actually pay me to do this? <laughs> so be careful what you wish for. Letterform Archive is a San Francisco-based nonprofit library of type calligraphy and graphic design. The core of it is a private collection belonging to a guy named Rob Saunders, whom I met at a bibliophile dinner a few years ago. And I said I was working on writing books. And he said, oh, I collect them. Funny how it is. <laughs> this is Archive Headquarters, which is in Rob's old apartment. He figured it was easier to move himself out than to move all the books. <laughs> now we have about 50, they have about 50,000 items, a full-time staff of nine people, several tours a week, 12 lectures a year, workshops, and a publishing program, all aimed at an interested but often uninitiated public. I served as the archive's founding executive director, and I took every opportunity I could to preach my joy in plain English. Every workshop held in our classroom had a show and tell. One time we participated in a citywide book scavenger hunt. We, drew, we threw great parties as well, right in the reading room, which dispensed with, dispensed with any notion of snootiness, although we put away the really fancy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so one day, somehow, you're miraculously teaching type history to first-year design undergrads, and you're able to do it with the first polyglot Bible, just a leaf, but who gives a you know, and Eric Gill's Four Gospels and a type specimen from 1928. Hands on. This is about how many visitors came to letter form in the first year and a half. The vast majority had no experience with books as objects. They would never get into the Morgan or the BL to do research, and nor would they want to. But here, all they needed was clean hands and curiosity. We like to say that the most frequently heard word at letter form archive was, wow. I took no, I passed up no opportunity, no opportunity was too banal to make a point. So I turned chapter one of my dissertation one time about a writing master's rivalry into an eight minute skit about uh, duels for a live variety show, writing out insults as well in gothic hand streaming on a GoPro. <laughs> then came this big break. So I was invited to speak at Creative Mornings, which is a monthly breakfast lecture series, which is about 100 cities now. Globally, you get 20 minutes, you get an audience of 200. My theme that month, the theme that month was magic, and I spoke about old books. Obvs. <laughs> but I could do this because Rob never hesitated to share the collection, even in wacky ways. I could do this with me and the slides up front, and then my colleague Kate walking around with the actual objects. Needless to say, they loved it. And then your talk gets highlighted in the global newsletter out of 150 talks or whatever that were given that month. And then you get this email, and this slog is completely worth it, where this woman says, hello, my name is Elena, and I'm in love with books. I want to marry all my books. <laughs> I am writing because I watched Sinfadani's Creative Mornings talk. I was checking my email, and I started freaking out. The whole time I was watching it, I was giggling and smiling and amening because her thoughts are my thoughts. Now I work at an ed tech company, which is staffed by nerds. No, seriously. Always be learning is one of the company's core values. <laughs> so I figured, all right, that's my in. So I showed up one day with a suitcase of books I'd assembled from home, a dictionary, a cookbook, a travel book, an artist book, a ratty quarto playbook, my high school copy of Hamlet, and I jazzed for 30 minutes about format and textual editing and bibliographical codes in plain English, or so I thought. Then there was my colleague, Phil, who'd sat there in the front row and took pictures and listened and everything. And at the end, in the Q&A, he raised his hand and he said, Sim, I'm going to be a little bit of devil's advocate here. 
but can you tell me why I should care about anything that you've just told me? <laughs> we need to do more rare books in the wild. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so we have a bit of time. We're going to invite our moderator up. And if we could ask our panelists to come to the chairs at the front to open it up into a bit of reflection and wider discussion. Um, our moderator today is Heather Wolf, the curator of manuscripts at the Folger Shakespeare Library, where she teaches paleography, has curated numerous Folger exhibitions, and has written widely on early modern manuscripts and the intersections between print and manuscript. She's currently working on Shakespeare documents in an online database of images, descriptions, and transcriptions of all known references and allusions to Shakespeare and his works during his lifetime and shortly thereafter. She's also the principal investigator for Early Modern Manuscripts Online, an IMLS-funded initiative to create a free and searchable database of images and transcriptions of early modern manuscripts created in England or written in English, and co-director of the Mellon-funded Before Farm to Table project, which I think has just announced its fellowship, so mm -hmm. this is something you might be interested in, you should apply, check it out. Apply. <laughs> yes. Um, she's edited the Trevelyan Miscellany of 1608. You can stop. Stop there. <laughs> 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 well, in addition to being distinguished and uh, awesomely read, is also a wonderful and generous colleague, and we thank her for joining us today. <laughs> All I'm doing is moderating. <laughs> 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 thank you. Um, and thank you for those wonderful, wonderful talks. Um, I have to admit, the title has given me so much trouble <laughs> and anxiety, every single word of it. I'm like, what does that mean? And what do they mean in connection to each other? And I was fixating on the sustainable aspect and just kept on thinking about composting and solar panels and <laughs> um, book history, and that didn't really get me anywhere. Um, but I think it was really helpful to have Beth and Dahlia say at the beginning that you know their big question for this panel was why the material text matters and Sim ended with that question as well, so I do want us to answer that question. Um, We're going to solve that one. As a group, we will uh, solve yeah. that. Um, so, I mean, I, I take this panel as, you know, people, it's the creative, people are thinking about the creative expression, a response to a textual <coughs> artifact, and are demonstrating, and in fact proving that despite the so-called fixity of print, uh, you know, these artifacts are endlessly malleable as we all know, but they're really demonstrating it and showing it. And it's just amazing your efforts to reach audiences beyond the disciples of Bowers and Gaskell um, <laughs> that are in this room. Um, a couple thoughts that I had before we, because uh, we have some time, right? <laughs> okay. Uh, are that I wish the moderator was a conservator <laughs> um, instead of me because conservators' eyeballs are amazing. <coughs> uh, their attention to substrates and structures, they see things that are um, very fascinating that we couldn't see without their eyes and expertise. And getting conservators and book artists in more in conversation in front of all of us would be very exciting. So maybe in the future we can get conservators into this. Um, they're always the rock stars of any tour we have at the Folger. You know, we take people down to the vault, they see the books, those are pretty cool, but then they go up to the lab and that's their magic place. Um, I also wanted to raise the idea of you know the materiality. We've been talking about the materiality of the book, but what about the materiality of um, the sort of bibliographical 
um, tools and technologies. So well, I'm thinking of a couple things here, like the Hinman Collator and the Dilux Watermark Reader and Haley's Comet Collator and all of these artifacts that are really, they're inspirational in how they came about, but I think they could be inspirational in our creative responses to them now, and mm -hmm. they shouldn't be tucked away in the random closets in our libraries, but they should be in exhibitions and museums and, and thought more about, and I want artists to respond to those things. Um, Going back to what, uh, who was quoting who? Rena was quoting um, Tony Grafton about <laughs> the artisanal skills uh, transform the practice of learned men. And I find that every time you know, I teach paleography and we have quill day, and instead of learning the alphabet by just going through the alphabet <laughs> and looking at all these strange <laughs> letter forms, um, the students get uh, Right now, it's a recipe for making ink, and they have to copy it out. They're not, tra I mean, they're sort of transcribing it, but it's only the second day of paleography, so they still don't really know what they're <laughs> doing. So they're emulating, they're copying, they're trying to just follow the strokes and do the motion of secretary hand to then go back and try and read what they have just created. And so um, bringing that that materi materiality into the practice too and understanding how, what the ingredients are that are used to make it, what the ingredients are for the paper. And then the whole letter locking phenomenon, has anyone been to a letter locking workshop? <laughs> um, we did one at Penn and half the people were from like an origami group who came in <laughs> so totally separate from the uh, ivory tower. It was these, you were there for that all these people who were so into the different ways that you could fold a piece of paper to make it locked without any adhesive and all the artistic possibilities of that. Uh, and then I also wanted to think about the other senses we use um, to discern materiality like smelling, I mean we, we feel and we see and we, we touch but um, you know, the idea of um, library book perfumes and <laughs> the creative potential in that for um, your work um, could be really cool. Um, so I guess the question I would want us to start out with is that, um, well, why the material book matters, um, but I mean, who, who really are the audiences for these creations? And how, why, yeah, why should, why should people care about these creations? I wanted you to just place them in sort of a wider context and think, yeah, beyond what you've done to how many people or what other audiences can benefit from the work that you do in conversation. So anyone can start. People like stuff, yeah. right? I mean, it's like <laughs> we know that. You know, <laughs> if we design books the way Apple is designing his iPhone, that is to be caressed and fondled nonstop, I mean, we we win, you know, right? You know, but we're you know, of course, we're not. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we understand the economics of that. But but once you present the objects to people, they are in love with them, um, and if they can touch them, then mm -hmm. you you seal the deal. So I think 
you know, I mean, the artist books are delicate and they're beautiful, and people see. You know, I was thinking you're talking about the instruments. There's a book out now. It's on Amazon. You know, this book is a planetarium, right? Mm -hmm. You can open it and make the little instrument. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's. Mm -hmm. So I think getting it out there is part of the problem. It seems so esoteric or something right, to go into a real book that looks definitely It's not at all. But it's because we want them to understand the importance of the material. Or As I understand. You know, I think this is our ace card, and I don't no. know why we are forgetting it. You know, I mean, I think it's very bizarre. You know, on the one hand, my colleagues complain about the library. The, li the books are going out of the library. But then when I say something like, well, can we let the students print a broadside of their poems? It's like, well, that, that's something the art department does. You know, we can't do that. It's like, <laughs> you know, so it's not important to you, this stuff. It's, we're failing to connect those two things, I think, at least in English departments. I know, you know elsewhere that's maybe not the case. I can tell you what I told Phil, who's hanging out here on the screen. <laughs> uh, why should I care about anything you've just told me? And he, he sort of disqualified, you know, so I'm just being a troublemaker, which he is. And I said, Phil, I think it's because I want to show that there are humans behind the objects that you're touching. Michael Suarez likes to say that books are alive with the decisions of their makers. And the photo he's taking here is um, of my husband's childhood dictionary in which he has written with his left hand, my name is Gotham, <laughs> when he's right-handed. So they're like, this, you know, it's not just any dictionary, it's this dictionary, or the editions of Hamlet that I was passing around saying, look at the punctuation in to be or not to be, and think about the fact that in 1603, there was no to be or not to be the way we read it. And so if tomorrow you go to a museum and you say, I'm literate enough in this field to know the difference between impressionism and modernism, the day after that, can I be literate enough in this, in this object reading, to know that somebody edited the text of Pride and Prejudice or Jane Eyre or Hamlet that you're reading? And then everyone had to go back to work and then it was lost, but you know, maybe a year from now someone will be thinking about this and I think that's a win. Librarians like to say, if all I get across is, I exist, come and talk to me, that's a win. That's basically what this is, it's a dog and pony show that's designed to say, look, it doesn't matter what object, it matters mm -hmm. that there's an object, it's not mm -hmm. just the text. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think also, if I continue with the metaphor of gathering, if you think about a book on the table, and students in front of us, in front of it, or us in front of it, it gathers people, it's, it's a record mm -hmm. of human gathering preserved over time. Um, and I, I bring in um, homeschoolers into Northeastern's very eager <coughs> special collections. And they are they take that out to their communities. They go look at the special collections in their little local libraries. So it's a place, I think if we capitalize on the gathering potential of mm -hmm. books, we've got it. And I think you know there's this relationship between materiality and critical literacy and um, special collections. It seems they amplify issues and inform all common media. I mean, you think of the manip manipulative power of, of of media, not in the ne negative sense, just in the reality that the way content is structured and arranged and what it's made of affects what information you perceive or not perceive. You know, even contemporary books, certain books just they they smell bad. You think of really glossy papers, like certain university press books, or certain <laughs> newspapers, the paper feels bad. I mean, you think of your relationship to text, certain objects are literally painful for you to read. And you think about how does that affect how you're preserving the engagement with content. 
So, you know, like artist books, for example, they amplify issues that inform all contemporary media. So I think there's this issue of sort of the materiality is a, is a historical context and, and the interest issue. But it seems that you, you, know, you can use these collections to tie issues of contemporary discourse and really the, the way in which the content and the form, you know, not only folk translates to how folks think and then how they act. And so I think tying into sort of ongoing issues related to critical literacy and media mm -hmm. literacy is mm -hmm. an opportunity. You know, I, a couple of you have mentioned um, the, the smell of books, the tactile presence of books, and I think we, we don't necessarily have a means for uh, describing or quantifying olfactory evidence in books, and the difference between a copy that's been out in the wild versus a copy that's always been on the shelf. Um, but I think that, that certain, certain means are being developed that are getting us closer to an ability to do that. I was actually recently at a conservators conference, mm -hmm. and we were talking about this article that was recently in Science Magazine, The Biology of Books, and we were looking at this. Um, fascinating uh, ways in which you can do um, non-intrusive DNA testing of vellums to determine what the, what the animal was that, um, that is present in the codex. So, is this, you know, a hair sheep or some kind of goat? What what particular type it is, and what exactly was the beetle that left the locals and, and the boards? Um, so, as as these um, modes of interrogating materiality are are expanding, um, I think that we'll have other means of, of looking at some of these issues that I think are central and thinking about the the bodily relationship of readers and makers to the object <coughs> Yeah, and that article, I was at that conference that that article was based on, and that was funny because the reporter, the, the conference wasn't at all about the worm poop, but the article <laughs> came about the worm poop. It's so <laughs> fascinating that um, one of the uh, speakers there, Blair Hedges, brought along a little tool so he could extract any, go into the wormhole in this uh, medieval codex and pull out some dusty poop to analyze to determine whether it was a northern or southern beetle. <laughs> yes. Just when you said that, I looked out because I thought, is someone out there not working on how books smell? I w wasn't sure. There's no perfumer. There's a project at the Morgan that's happening right now about the smell of books. We know anything more about it than anyone here. It's the Columbia Preservation Department, I think. But it does seem you're all pointing to, like there's, there are joyful and playful ways of helping people comprehend the instability of the text or the context of the text that they're reading and that could be helpful in terms of understanding the source of your news and it all has a material aspect to it. <coughs> um, do the, or do you have any questions that you want to get circulated? Well, I would open, open it up. Yeah, yeah. Open okay. it up. Yeah, we've got about 15 minutes. So. Okay. Yes, James. Um, this is great. I won't go on and on about it. It's great. <laughs> 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 um, flipping it. Right, so we like to talk about public humanities. Let's get out of the ivory tower, the, the ivory stacks, um, right? Bring the books into the public to teach the public media literacy so they know these things we have. Um, but I'm curious about the other way around. All of you propose a viewpoint change in how you look at books, perhaps to 
shows the public or as an artist. But what does that bring back back to our understanding of books? What does bringing the public into looking at books teach us that we couldn't see before about books? Is this just about like we know things and we're transmitting it in a more palpable way, or is there kind of a dialogue? And I am interested in anyone. Uh, so perhaps wants to respond to that. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, the erasure is all talk about how this fundamentally transformed their ways of reading, and now they can't shape it. Shape it. So, so I mean, be careful what you do to books. Um, and I didn't talk about the cut-up artists and the collage artists, because maybe too many librarians to talk about that. But <laughs> they, too, found, you know, I mean, these elements of chance, um, they they saw like I come to erase things with a certain idea, but then the book works on me. You know, so there were all these interchanges between um, the object working on them that I think might be brought back in. Um, I've had students do erasure, and they were, you know, you know maybe ten percent of them hated it and didn't understand it. Um, they weren't trained in creative writing, so I mean it was an interesting experiment. Um, but you know, at least half of them made something, and they wanted it back, and they didn't want me to write on it, you know, like and yeah. frame it, and, and they changed their idea about what it meant to process some of the material in the class. And I think that's something that could definitely be brought back in both into the classroom. But then just for scholars to see, you're looking at something, you're studying something, um, you know. Do an erasure on it, you know, not technically make a copy, but <laughs> <laughs> because all the poets sort of said, I understood the material by erasing some of the material. Mm -hmm. um, I understood what it was by seeing the bones of it this way. And that may be somewhat fanciful, but I think there is something to it. Um, Northeastern University has one little medieval manuscript that I discovered in the stacks when I came there. And um, I encouraged undergraduates to um, apply for funds to research it. And we've been holding public events, um, including Meet the Manuscript, um, where we invited the public in. And um, mostly it was other students who came in, but um, other students from all over the university, people also in the Center for Spiritual Dialogue, um, librarians, and they noticed things that we hadn't ever noticed. And they asked the kinds of questions that we're not used to asking. Um, and we have one coming up called um, Chant, or Cure the Dragon, where we were going to chant the music um, from the manuscript. And already the music department students are coming in and working on the sound so we can put it on our website. Mm -hmm. So we're getting all kinds of technical mm -hmm. and other kinds of visual experiences that then feed into our research and give us new directions. I totally agree with really that. Like fresh, fresh eyes yes. are the best because they're not afraid to ask right. mm -hmm. totally yeah. basic yeah. questions that you realize like that is a really hard, hard question. Yes. I don't know, and I haven't addressed that. So thank you. Who else? Yeah, back there. Uh, I have a question about two terms, one of which came up in several presentations, and the other of which, the other of which didn't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask two questions. <laughs> Uh, so it became a question about two terms. One term is performance that came up in several talks. I wanted to know whether you think that in the study of texts as material objects, we commit ourselves also to studying performances, um, and in what way? And my other question about information, that's a term that didn't come up. Uh, it's a term that I've heard used uh, in connection with one library in particular with which I have experience. Uh, the notion that 
books are really vehicles for information, and that libraries are about providing access to information, becomes in some cases a justification for not having books as material objects. And so I wonder if you think that the study of books as material objects is antithetical to or perhaps utterly compatible with the notion that books are vehicles for information. Well, I, I guess um, the information question, I think there's the issue of, um, um, you know, one, it's, it ties into Sin's talk quite a bit. I mean, there's the issue of how do you, how, how are institutions able to more effectively are broaden and, and communicate, you know, a concept of what information is, and that, you know, it's not simply text. Um, you know, the book I cite, couple if you were to touch that book, the pages feel different because you could feel fibers in it, certain pages smell different. So sensory information is information too, um, beyond sort of traditional definitions of text. So I think some of it is, I think um, you know, book historians and media historians have a broad conception of definition, but how you communicate that. But more importantly, how you're able to effectively communicate it to, to administrators and policymakers, you know, the folks that you're dependent upon for, for, for funding. I mean, I think that's where, again, your the lessons that you sort of illustrate are important. In response to the, the first part, mm -hmm. um, I, I had a colleague who once said that he felt that book arts was a performance art. And not necessarily in the sense that the process of producing it is uh, kinetic and, and uh, intriguing, but in the sense that embedded in the book is the, the, the various hands and, and um, interactions that have led to it, which I think is, a, is an interesting thing in thinking about how that um, continue, that performance continues to be uh, enacted as the book passes from hand to hand, and I'm interested in hearing what other book artists and, and others <laughs> might think about sure the, is that? <laughs> um, how, how putting a, a book that can be handled and manipulated in various different ways and make meaning in different ways um, leaves the, the final act of that performance to the reader, perhaps. It does. <laughs> Every time I see a person interact with my books and they do something that I wasn't expecting, mm -hmm. you know, oftentimes I'm like, oh, design flaw that, you know, they didn't, you know, go through it the right way. Um, I realize, you know, that, that, that you have to sort of let go and, and realize that people are going to interact with it the way they wish um, mm -hmm. and uh, that that's okay and actually a good thing. Um, sort of thankful that I, I'm not controlling everything. Um, I was going to say for, for part B of your question, um, uh, because book arts is up to something different, you know, it's not just um, uh, information contained, the book's not information, a bag of words, you know, so um, you're you basically using um, all of the arts of the book, paper making, print, uh, letterpress printing, binding, all of that to, to make a creative whole, um, and it's not necessarily to um, impart uh, some kind of... Um, <laughs> Uh, empirical knowledge. Um, hopefully, it's some, there's some kind of an interaction. Or, and I notice a lot of libraries now. I'm um, selling my books, books to them. Are, are collecting artist books and bringing them out, and people are interacting with them. And so, I hope that adds to the library not just being sort of a um, knowledge container. Um, so that that part where you were saying is, is kind of hard for me. It feels um, harsh and cold. And, and um, hopefully, we, we really can be up to something else. Um, or something more. Um, 
So there's that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can I just jump off of that though? Please. Please. And Simon, like subvert your, your bifurcation and make it back into one that I think that, as Erica said, the books are performing for us in a way and that we talked about in these books behave and they, they do things and, and they, it's all I'm saying yesterday in the quilting session that the books evoke feelings so then there's this sort of re, you know, feedback loop, I guess. Um, and I want to sort of think about that kind of performance and what it does to this information, which, like you're saying, is a very neutral, sterile, in my mind, I think the color gray, like information is gray. <laughs> um, but I kind of reject the notion that like libraries are information homes or that books are information containers. I kind of go past that to interpretation, to creativity, to knowledge. So my LinkedIn profile, because I've had to stitch all these weird story episodes together of like, what is my life? I say I connect people with knowledge. I'm not connecting people with information because phone books do that, Google does that, you know, um, data does that. As you were, you know, talking about data, but there, it's this sort of progression from like data to information to that synthesis, that work that we're doing, that performance that the book is doing, and our reaction to it that I think creates more than just information. And so I too fuss about why are books getting, why are libraries getting rid of books because I think they're like they do things. And that's not just information. Um, one, one last uh, thought that came out of what you're saying. Um, a professor of mine said that the hand makes things for itself. And so my, my hope also is that in the physical book, we recognize ourselves um, and the way that we think. Um, and that without, without those physical materials, we, we, we won't see that reflection um, and that something's really lost there. So um, I want to ask about another term. Um, and I think like Heather, I want to ask about sustainability. And so I think like Heather, I um, expected, <coughs> this panel's delightful, so it, it exceeded every expectation I ever had, but I expected it to be a panel on um, conservation or how we save books or how we, you, they endure the ravages of time or something like that. And this conversation is even better because it's actually about how the material, I think, as I'm tracking it, it's about how the materiality of <coughs> books makes discourse itself sustainable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to put that out there as sort of my um, reshuffling of those terms and ask <laughs> if that seemed right to you. Um, Except that my people would never use the word discourse. And so, and, and um, I guess I wanted to ask then if, if how we do want to think about sustainability or, or what the objects of sustainability should be. So, or how the sustainability of the materiality is related to the sustainability of a discourse or of a community or of a performance or of a knowledge network or, or the sort of human categories and communities that are attached to all these objects. Well, my people, the mm. San Francisco tech bros. Heather asked me yesterday, who is archiving Silicon Valley's design work and their product development work and there's all this and I think all of us have talked about material that was the catchword right the materiality and you're hanging on to something nobody is talking about or we're we are talking but not probably urgently enough about how to sustain and preserve digital things mm -hmm. which don't have materiality except they really do mm -hmm. and that's really problematic and the internet archive which is one of my favorite institutions is always talking about this big 20th century black hole that comes from not being able to preserve and steward mm -hmm. 20th century objects into the future because it's all this copyright and like access and you know, all this stuff. So 
I think we're all we're 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 doing pretty well with the institutions that have marble on the front that have like <laughs> we're not doing so well with talking to like tech bros and saying hey like where are you putting your versions like how are you dealing with the fact that like pocket app from last year is not the same as from this year like is google doing that no is ios doing that no like who is preserving this stuff and they're like oh but it's not stuff you know but like it is it also occurs to me that um you know, we're talking about this as if we have to teach everyone everything about this. And in fact, people people know a lot already. They may not realize that they know it. I think about Michael Suarez saying, when you go into the airport and you look across at the bookstore and you see a book on the cap, and you can tell what it's about because of its format, because of its design, because mm -hmm. of its typography. And those are the things that are in the air around us that maybe we're not doing a good enough job of, of articulating and capturing, but it's also something that as all of us as citizens in our media world understand and know, and that may also be a place to have this discussion and thinking about the, the current moment and thinking about um, what would the 16th or 17th century audience know about the difference between Porto and Porto and how, how is that something that's understandable to us? Hey, I, I know we're almost at the end, but I just wanted to mention that also in the, the Bay Area, one will find the, the Computer History Museum, which is supported, I think, most interestingly about it. It's supported by a very robust network of hobbyists, enthusiasts, retirees, people with deep experience in the industry who are deeply committed to preserving this digital history, both hardware and software. So that's let's resist the sort of teleological temptation to turn the digital into sort of the foil for that which cannot be preserved because that, in fact, ends up obscuring a, a great deal of labor and expertise. Thank you. We are at 12.15, yes. right? So um, thank you to the presenters so much for... Uh,